Hello, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. On Monday, 15th of February at 8.30am, a 54-year-old construction worker fell to his death, falling 20 metres down a lift well at a Hamilton Merino site in Carlton, Melbourne. He was joined in death on February the 21st by another construction worker at the Royal Adelaide Hospital site. This time the worker was crushed between a scissors lift and a concrete slab. This is the second death at this site involving a scissor lift. The construction industry is inherently dangerous, but it is easy to make a connection between the increase in deaths and accidents and construction sites with the increasingly tight profit margins and unrealistic timeframes in today's construction industry. Another aspect of this increase is the criminalisation of union safety visits on sites where union officials must give 24 hours notice before they are allowed to enter a work site or police can be called. It has been the unions who have been at the forefront of maintaining a systematic approach to safety in work sites across Australia, reinforcing the old OH&S saying that there's no such thing as an accident. I'm a sous chef here. If any luck, I should be head chef by next year. I've got this amazing fiancé who I won't be marrying this weekend because I'm about to be in a terrible accident. But really, I should have cleaned up the grease over there. And they should never put the deep fryer so close. Dr. Jared Ayers, Occupational Health and Safety Manager for the Victorian CFMEU. Now, there was a very, very unfortunate accident, or, well, we won't call it an accident, a very unfortunate uh, incident, incident at uh, a building site in Carlton last Monday. The week before, there was a similar type of accident of someone falling from a site and breaking his legs and his arm, but uh, this time uh, the person died. Can you talk to us about why this sort of thing shouldn't be happening on our building sites? Look, it's it's an awful um, tragedy what happened on Monday uh, where this poor chap has gone to work and... uh, Paid the ultimate price, and his family's also paid that paid that price. So, um, I mean, there's lots of reasons, I suppose, when you break it down, why these things happen. And it's never, like you said at your intro, it's never an accident. It's it's always a, you know, a series of events which ultimately lead to something terrible happening. Um, in the case of the fatality, you know, the work methods were very almost archaic, if you like. And, and, and those sort of things shouldn't happen in this day and age. It's 2016. People deserve to go to work and to come home. You know, workers don't go to work to play a game of probability with their with their life as the ultimate penalty. Well, it's an ordinary yes. affair, wasn't it? Because uh, he was up on the top of a uh, platform, d- drilling into some pylons, and the lift shaft was only half covered, right? Yeah, look, he was in what we call the riser shaft on a makeshift work platform. Um, Now, that makeshift work platform hadn't been engineered design, um, you know, it hadn't been sort of calculated for any type of, you know, loading or weight. It's it's a a bit of um, a guessing game of how much weight or how much force 
it could actually withstand. There was no um, checking or no sign-off, no verification of that. He was in a riser shaft drilling some hole, and this platform was attached by um, or suspended by um, a large bearer, which had been placed into what are called the pockets of the lift shaft. There were, and it was attached to the uh, riser shaft wall, and he was drilling into that riser shaft wall, and um, it wasn't a huge platform, and you're correct, the, 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 the riser shaft hadn't been fully enclosed, um, hadn't been fully covered, and unfortunately his platform has given way, and that's still under investigation as to the reasons why. Uh, and he's paid, like I said, the ultimate price, and he's fallen roughly 20, 25 metres onto the hard concrete below. Now, this man was an experienced worker. Oh, he was, he was 53. Yeah, he'd been in the industry a, a long time. He was well-known in the industry. He wasn't a careless person, wasn't a reckless person. He was just like, you know, the majority of our members who work in the construction industry, a conscientious, hard worker, um, had been told to do a job and had put his faith, I suppose, in others who probably uh, have a lot more control over the workplace and the environment and um, uh, had put that faith and, and that faith has, you know, hasn't been repaid. And um, he certainly wasn't doing anything wrong. Um, and he also wasn't doing anything unusual either, was he? Because the work was no, a fairly straightforward no, was, piece of work. Yeah, he was just drilling, drilling holes into the concrete wall. Um, I, my understanding is that they had uh, done similar work up that riser shaft before on similar work platforms. Indeed, I think they had been working there on the Saturday. Um, unfortunately, this time, um, it, the work method failed. I mean, nowadays we'd prefer, obviously the preferred option would be to build a scaffold from the bottom of that lift riser shaft and have it fully decked out with platforms and just work your way up. And then when you finish all the work in that riser shaft, the scaffolders can come back in and then they can dismantle the, uh, the scaffold. That would have been a much more efficient and safer engineering control. And and that's the issue, isn't it? Really, I mean, quite besides the uh, the the, oh, the disgraceful outcome for this man and his family, what's really at issue here is in a workplace like a construction site, there are inherent dangers, and that there is a requirement for there to be uh, application of systems because common sense doesn't just prevail, does it? No, look, common sense doesn't just prevail. And probably the most fundamental reasons why it doesn't prevail is time and money, you know, and, and time costs money. So programs now are extraordinarily tight. Almost one, you know, we argue on some projects, probably unrealistic to achieve. Um, and the cost of the projects, you know, and the time it takes, uh, they run on very um, low profit margins, if for want of a better term. And the time frames, like I said, are extremely tight and there's, there's, there's no margin of error. People are pushed to achieve in what in some cases we're calling unrealistic time frames. And so the subcontractor hasn't got the time to get the scaffolders in and to build the scaffolder. They've, they've priced the job, so they haven't got the financial backing to do that. The major contractors are being forced to do this by the clients. The clients are being forced to do this by the banks. You know, the finances, it's a whole gamut, a whole range of issues. 
Um, but ultimately, the ones with the least amount of input, the least amount of control, that is the workers, have the least amount of say and influence over how the work's done. And it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, OH&S and the issue of uh, right of entry are at the nub of the Royal Commission into uh, the uh, worker governance, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Look, it's it's interesting. Uh, you know, if it wasn't so serious, it'd be amusing to see the one of the recommendations by Dyson Hayden is that, you know, union officials need to give 24 hours notice over a safety breach to get onto the site. Well, that's just crazy talk. Um, and disappointingly... That recommendation was made without any conversation or discussion with people like myself or anyone else in the union OH&S movement. No discussion, as far as to my knowledge, and to the people I've spoken to in Victoria, from any major contractor uh, or subcontractor. Um, to best of my knowledge, no discussion with any regulatory workplace um, safety authorities, such as uh, Victorian Work Cover or WorkSafe or any other um, regulatory OHNS body. So he's made this recommendation. I'm not quite sure on what basis, but certainly not on an objective discussion with the major industry stakeholders. Or you'd almost say actually for making workplaces safe. Because if you look at OHNS, it's all about the balancing act between people and power in a oh, workplace. Yeah. Yep, and the ones with the least power have the ones with the least input, and yet they're the ones who do most of the work and are exposed to, you know, the major hazards which can kill, um, and they haven't been given a voice, and that's extremely disappointing and extraordinary when that type of recommendation comes out. Coming out of this uh, Royal Commission, what they're saying is that uh, nobody should be allowed, by force of using the police, <coughs> should be allowed to go onto a works site and observe what they're doing. Oh, it's okay. It, it's just, it, it's, it's, it's beyond belief. But, um, you know, nothing surprises me when that, that's coming out of that Royal Commission, given the political and ideological nature and the basis on which that Royal Commission was founded. Nothing surprises me, unfortunately. Disappoints me, but doesn't, doesn't surprise me. People who are injured or indeed die work at work that they that their superannuation and their uh, work cover is actually in place is that something that's worrying people at the moment oh for sure for sure because if, if we're not allowed to if the unions aren't allowed to sort of make sure that they have got the proper insurances which come under those sort of schemes which are terrific schemes and the reason they are tricky is because they offer insurances and guarantees of financial security even in the, the worst event um, if we can't check that those things are fully paid up and the workers are covered, it just leaves a trail of absolute disaster. And families and workers just don't deserve any any of that at all. One thing about WorkSafe is that it's become much more, and uh, you know, this idea of it working as a advisory body rather than a mm. regulatory body. There is a lack of what I call a disincentive for a lot of employers to do the right thing. There are some employees who will do the right thing, but there's a, a fair few who will, what I call, run the gauntlet, roll the dice of probability, and hope they don't get caught and hope that nothing goes wrong. Well, in this case, something did go wrong. Um, and when it does go all terribly wrong, 
it's the workers and their families who suffer. Now, also on another level is that I'm sure that the public considers that the councils must have some uh, say in ensuring that they themselves, that the public themselves are safe around so much building. Um, I mean, I've been hearing that councils are quite loath now to actually interfere. Is that the case? Look, yeah, well, there are some councils who give building approvals and, you know, there's a lack of public protection from falling objects so they don't require scaffolding or, you know, hoardings or overhead gantries. We have councils who won't allow, and Vic Roads, who won't allow, um, you know, the large concrete jersey curb barriers on the roads. So, you know, any, any car, and we've seen it time and time again, and we had one recently uh, just before Australia Day where a car flew off the road and went into the building site. Now, luckily, mm. that wasn't an RDO because it hadn't have been on an RDO. We would have had probably three or four fatalities when the car landed on a, an active working formwork deck. So, you know, councils, Vic Roads, we're talking with councils, Vic Roads and WorkSafe to try to improve that whole traffic management, but... Some of the uh, governmental bodies are very reluctant to to um, provide the protection because, A, it, it makes it a bit more expensive to build, um, but it does take a bit more time. But it will save, you know, potentially it saves countless lives from a potential disaster. So, again, cars going through a, you know, a school um, ground and a, a parent was killed, and that's a terrible yeah, that's tragedy. Right. Well, yeah, so... The evidence is there that, you know, you can't control an independent third party, such as the driver of a vehicle, but you can put in place, especially around building sites, better protective measures than are currently what I would be calling becoming normalised in our industry, and that is just red and white tape and plastic bollards. I mean, we see it all the time. We see parents on forced onto the road with little children, and all that's between those people and success or failure in terms of being hit by an out-of-control vehicle or an errant vehicle uh, is a bit of red and white plastic. And I just find that simply astounding that it's accepted by both the regulatory authority and Vic Roads and the councils. It's certainly not accepted by us, but it's very difficult to get sort of people to change. Now the other- but we're working on it, Annie. We are <laughs> <laughs> there seems to be some sort of a uh, bit of disgruntlement about the uh, types of uh, cases that WorkSafe is choosing to prosecute. <clears throat> oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and again, we've spoken to them that they have to provide a disincentive to people who don't do the right thing and who won't uh, adhere to not just regulatory standards but industry standards and Australian standards in terms of providing the best safety outcomes and measures for workers and the public when they're doing construction work. Yeah, they, they, they have to have a really good hard look at themselves and figure out whether they want to be a regulatory body and regulate and enforce an OHNS Act and legislation or legislative framework or whether they want to be a consultancy advisory body because at the moment... Um, I'd much prefer that they take the regulatory approach and enforce the legislation rather than just saying to someone, oh, I think you can do better. Yeah, that's right. And on the last uh, last point, uh, it's as if uh, the councils and the other bodies are prepared to see the public and the workers as statistics or collateral damage, but actually the individuals involved, they certainly don't want to see themselves as collateral damage. No. Look, you know, and I think it really hits home when you, like, it hit home for us on Monday 
these fatalities, you know, our industry is quite small and a lot of our workers and a lot of, you know, our officials put themselves in the shoes of that poor worker who died and then, you know, there for the grace of God go any one of us. You know, I don't think work safe or the councils or Vic Crows or whoever really see the devastating impact that a fatality on a construction site has and it affects dozens of people. It's just, you know, the families, the workers, the workers who were there, the workers' friends, the list is endless. Stick together. 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 You're listening to Stick Together on Community Radio. Can you hear the sound of a federal election coming? It might be June or August, depending on who you listen to. For many working Australians, insecure work, wage theft and casualisation are important issues for their future and indeed the whole character of a future Australia. Over the last few months, reports on Stick Together and in other media outlets, it's been made clear that the Turnbull government is interested in getting rid of penalty rates, is happy to use visas to bring in overseas workers when locals could easily do the jobs, and when overseas workers are used, many have been ripped off without little government controls in place. Recently, Federal Labor Shadow Minister for Employment and Industrial Policy, Brendan O'Connor, was giving us the lowdown on what Labor policy was in these areas. Let's refresh our memories. Bill Shorten and I announced the Federal Opposition's policy on worker exploitation. We're going to crack down on those employers who underpay workers. We're going to increase civil penalties for those employers who do the wrong thing. We're examining whether other criminal penalties should apply for the most egregious conduct by employers. We're going to crack down on sham contracting, the capacity, as I said before, for employers to contrive a relationship that is not an employment one to deny workers their income. We're going to focus on directors who deliberately strip away assets from a company, liquidate the company and set up another company, so-called phoenixing going to pursue those directors if they intentionally deprive creditors, including workers, by closing down a company. And we call upon Malcolm Turnbull to join Labor and indeed tackle this scourge because it's absolutely vital. I spoke to David McElray, Assistant Secretary of United Voice, a union that covers many of the industries most affected by unscrupulous employment practices, such as cleaners, fast food workers and aged care workers, for a reaction to the Labor Party's policy statements. Well, we, we welcomed the announcement when uh, Bill Shorten made it. Uh, we'd like to think it's a first step. Uh, in a policy from a, 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 a Labor Party at a federal level, but it's a welcome step. I can talk in particular about the experience of my union, United Voice. We cover workers in uh, what tends to be called low-paid uh, industries, so one of them is cleaning. Uh, and in cleaning, you have a, a real proliferation of international students in particular being exploited, uh, international students have restricted working arrangements. They can only work 20 hours a week and so forth. And you, you have employers demanding they work more and then holding that over them and saying, well, if you complain about it, we'll cancel your visa. And we hear those stories all the time. So, uh, I mean, we've been hearing about this for a long time. Uh, and uh, as you say, uh, 
work work visa arrangements for uh, students have almost been set up to ensure that they will be exploited because there is no watchdog ensuring that they aren't being abused. Yes, uh, that's right. And obviously um, with um, uh, international students, uh, uh, people who've come here, uh, new arrivals to the country, they don't know the institutional arrangements that operate in Australia. They don't know about... Many of them come from countries where there are no unions. Uh, they don't know about unions or how to contact a union if they know about it. Um, they are unlikely to be a member, often because they're low-paid and feel that they can't afford it. Uh, and also they might um, often might um, work within their particular community group and and, uh, and be employed within that community group and being exploited by members of that community. So uh, it is true, it has been very difficult to... Uh, Mount an adequate response. As a union movement, uh, I think we probably bear our fair share of blame for that. It's, it's easier said than done, of course, but there's clearly systemic issues here that need addressing. We're starting to take steps in that direction, really trying to make sure that we're contacting international students in particular so that they're aware of the rights that apply to them under Australian law. Well, of course, this has flow-on effects for all Australian workers, doesn't it? Because there's been increasing casualisation and that has led to employer groups talking about, uh, oh, the workers love the flexibility of ours, but it, in actually the way people are living, uh, they're going backwards in terms of uh, family life conditions and their ability to uh, work out their futures. Absolutely, and um, if you talk to working people or if you, your listeners who are workers themselves will know that you know insecure work is one of the major issues facing the Australian economy, I think. Um, insecure work where people don't have predictable hours and don't have predictable income and are vulnerable because they rely on the goodwill of their employer to continue to receive work. So they're less likely to join a union, they're less likely to speak up if... if uh, if they're being exploited in the workplace, all those things because of the insecure nature of that work. It's, uh, that change in um, the way the labour market works over the last 15 to 20 years has had that profound effect on, on people and, um, uh, and also led to a sort of reduction in, um, uh, in wages as well for those people generally and for you know, workers at real wage. The rate of increase of real wages has declined substantially. So in actual fact, it's a real relief to have the leader of the Labor Party actually coming out with some clear statements about what they might do to defend workers' rights. Can, which ones are particularly of interest to the United Voice? Well, I think what they said about um, further protections for vulnerable workers was, was something that we particularly welcomed, um, that... Um, I think uh, the Seven Eleven stories have really shocked the nation, and I think that was um, partly in response to the revelations that came out of the Seven Eleven uh, uh, media investigations, and then recently on the weekend, where uh, uh, it was revealed people were being by the Seven Eleven's own sort of appointees that they, they'd seen that people were being beaten in order to return the money. So that that. The fact that the, the, uh, the opposition has, has recognised that that's an issue 
and I said they'd take steps in that area where we should be utterly ashamed that this is happening in our country. Uh, I mean, I'm ashamed of a lot of things, and I think the refugee debate gets a lot of attention, and so it should, but these are people being treated in an appalling manner in our in the workforce in our own country, and it should be receiving as much attention, I think, as, as the refugee issue. Uh, so that would be the one I'd particularly welcome, and, and it stands in stark contrast, of course, to the government. Fair Work Ombudsman is a sort of still a relatively new body, and, and it does have that, um, that regulatory power, but um, it's like having a sort of a, an under-resourced cop on a beat in the middle of a crime wave, right? They might pick up the odd one here and there, but you've got a systemic problem that needs to be addressed, and that's, that's addressed by uh, uh, empowering workers to stand up within their communities and within their workplaces on a collective basis through a union. And that's the only way you can really resolve these things permanently. So, yeah, with res- I mean, it's obviously, I think, just nonsense that you don't need more licensing uh, of labour hire. I mean, labour hire... Labour hire makes sense in some industries for some limited purposes, but the extent to which labour hire has grown and proliferated in the last 20 years is purely to um, get around what little regulation remains in the employment relationship. Uh, That's really the principal purpose that labour hire serves. Its purpose should be to cope with surges in employment in certain industries, but but you'll see many... um, Hotel industry is a classic one where... Uh, people who uh, housekeepers who clean hotels are all employed. In, they work in the hotel and they're employed through a labour hire business, not not directly by the hotel. There's no reason for that other than to reduce their wages and get around the limited conditions that would apply otherwise. Things like sham contracting, underpayments, unsafe work practices, and phoenixing are all things that are qu- quite uh, systemic and require legislation and enforcement and come directly out of the employer class, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And these, again, I mean, sham contracting is something that we see have members in range of contracting industries cleaning, which I spoke about, security, catering, hospitality, and you just have sham contracting ranges designed to avoid tax and to avoid obligations. If you ever go after those companies, as you said, they phoenix, so they dissolve the company and just start another one. These are major systemic problems that should be looked into. You need a, a powerful and probably resourced union movement, I think, in order to address some of those problems. That would have been the Royal Commission that we should have had. That's it for Stick Together today. Thanks to you for listening. And thanks to Dr. Jared Ayres from the CFMEU, Brendan O'Connor, Federal Shadow Minister for Employment, and David McElray from United Voice for speaking to us today. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 03 9419 8377. My name's Annie McLaughlin. Catch you next time.